0: So, my guest today, I'm really, really excited, um, I'm pumped to have a conversation with Don Peebles, my guest today on the podcast, should be a really interesting time, whenever we get together we have great conversation about a lot of different topics that range from politics to real estate to philanthropy to just the general state of affairs and feeling across the United States. Don, thank you so much for joining me. It's a real honor and privilege to have you in my office. And thank you for taking the time to come and chat with me.
1: Great to be here. I enjoy chatting with you. So it will be a fun amount
0: of time we spend together. So you mentioned when you walked in, you liked the view out of my office. Yes.
1: Great view uh, facing west and also just to the northwest. I get a a nice view of Hudson Yards. Fantastic project. uh, that's transforming New York and uh, re-energizing, frankly, the office building market that had been you know, kind of dragging along for some time here, finally providing class A office space for major companies who are in New York who want to stay in New York.
0: Right, so let's turn the clock back a little bit because I want to touch on all of these things about Hudson Yards and the future of New York City, but first I want to go back um, a little bit and talk about your background, your upbringing, a number of years ago, Forbes called you one of the wealthiest African Americans, and congratulations on that. And just want to talk about, you know, how y- you got there and where you came from. And maybe you could give me a little bit of background about your personal history. Sure.
1: Great. I mean, I hope hope they have a, a rate for the happiest Americans, because I think I'm one of those two. I'm, a, I'm very happy. A life good. You know, I'm the father of two kids uh, who are both doing well. And my wife and I are having a lovely love affair after 30 years, so it's been a fun ride. Um, but I start. I grew up in Washington, D.C. in Detroit, Michigan. So I was born in Washington, D.C. Uh, my mother had me at 19. Uh, my father was an auto mechanic who had come back from the Korean War. He was injured in the Korean War, um, fully recovered, and then came to Washington, D.C. He had growing up in rural Virginia, which was extremely segregated during the time he was born and grew up. Uh, And uh, my mother grew up in Washington, D.C. She was born in Washington, D.C. One of uh, five girls, uh, my grandfather, and he was a hotel doorman. And my mother's mother died when my mother was a teenager. So my grandfather raised his five daughters and encouraged him to get a good, strong education and that there were a a world of limitless possibilities here in the country. And uh, so anyway, my mother uh, had me at 19, worked as a secretary and then uh, got into real estate sales kind of by accident. She was uh, buying, she'd gotten gotten divorced from my father when I was about five. She got remarried and they were buying a home in suburban Maryland in a subdivision. And so she toured the subdivision with her husband, saw a model unit, liked it, and they bought it. And at closing, she looked at the closing statement and saw the commission line item and thought it was pretty excessive for someone who spent maybe an hour with her and, uh, she found out what they did and realized she could do it too. And felt that she'd be able to do it. So she went to night school and got a real estate sales uh, license. Uh, by the time she got her license, uh, she and her second husband were divorcing and she moved, my mother and I moved to Detroit, Michigan, where one of her sisters was living with her husband who was doing a uh, medical residency. And, uh, she ended up, uh, doing selling houses in Detroit, did well, started her own brokerage firm. I think she started that business when maybe i was 10 mm-hmm. and i remember earning a little extra money cleaning up her offices and so that was my exposure to real estate
0: so was that your first job
1: yeah that was my first job was uh, cleaning her office. i volunteered i asked to do it so i could earn some extra money and uh so it was always a uh, my mother was a i think did the same thing my grandfather instilled is that he didn't believe anybody should just get money for doing nothing so everybody had to Earn money just even for the basic allowance. So, my mother was a bit restrictive when it came to money. So, I wanted to earn some.
0: At that age, were you like, all right, I'm going to go into real estate. This is my dream. This is an interesting career? Is that a trajectory you thought you'd follow?
1: No, quite the opposite. So, the uncle that uh, my aunt had married, he was the doctor, and I liked what he did. And so, I wanted to go into medicine. And um, you know, after, I mean, my mother and I lived in Detroit for five years, and then we moved back to Washington, D.C., where she worked in real estate, worked at Fannie Mae, and uh, did other things. So, I I saw real estate. It was interesting to me. So, I looked at real estate more as being potentially a passive investor. And so, in my high school yearbook, I said I was going to go into medicine, practice orthopedic surgery, and then invest in real estate to create wealth. What happened? I changed
0: my mind. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I didn't like, uh, after my first year of college, I didn't like science and medicine as much as I thought I would. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do something different, less restrictive and, you know, more free to be able to have flexibility in my life and my career. Um, I spent my last two years of high school though, working on Capitol Hill, I was a page and an intern on the, for the house of representatives. So I went to school in the library of Congress. My school was on the top floor of the library of Congress with about 60 to 80 other kids from around the country. And uh, then, you know, we went to school from 6 in the morning until 10 a.m. And then from that point on, we walked across the street and worked in the U.S. Capitol uh, until you know, Congress went out of session. And then uh, I played sports for the school team and on the chess team. And so I had a very busy schedule, very active. And so going to college was kind of too slow also. So I quit. I went to Rutgers, um, quit after my first year, went back to Washington, D.C., and got my sales license. And that was hmm. 1979. And interest rates were over 20%. Hmm. So very hard to get anyone to qualify for a mortgage. I could sell, and there was some opportunity, but no one could really take advantage of it. And uh, so I got into appraisal By that time, my mother had left Fannie Mae, gone back into her own business, and started an appraisal and consulting business. So I worked for her for about three years and then started my own appraisal business. And, uh, and I was very politically active in local politics in Washington, D.C. during that time as well, because I'd gotten to know politics pretty well from working on
0: the Hill you. What does that mean, politically active? Can you elaborate a little bit on that?
1: I had Washington, D.C. when I moved back, we moved back to Washington, D.C. in 1973 when I was 13. So the following year, the city got what's called home rule, which is the right to elect its own government. Prior to that, because it was the nation's capital, uh, the president appointed their local government. And then Congress oversaw all of its budgetary activities. And so they got home rule in seventy-four, had elections. My mother was politically involved, so I got a chance to meet some of the city council members, people who were running. And one of them ultimately I kind of became a role model for me if you will, or a mentor. And then four years later he became mayor of the city. Uh, so when I was eighteen he got elected mayor. And when I came back, I got more involved in what he was doing and then his re election and then began to get involved in other city council elections as well. And so, D.C. being, a, you know, the nation's capital is an extremely political city. Mm-hmm. And so, politics kind of opened a lot of doors as well. So, I got involved in local politics and also my former classmates. Many of them went back to Capitol Hill to work. And so, many of them were beginning to work on Capitol Hill offices and so forth after graduating college. So. You know, I continue to you know have relationships with them, which created some you know opening opportunities to open doors as
0: well. So, was that your first mentor?
1: Yeah, I would say a, actually a couple members of Congress. Um, Ron Dellums of California, who passed away a couple of years ago, and then John Conyers of Michigan, who passed away um, late last year. So, those two people would have been my mentors. I mean, I grew up in a very kind of unique situation. I mean, uh, I grew up. Um, I was born during the Civil Rights Movement in the I'm a baby boomer. And the 1960s um, was a very interesting time in our country. I grew up in, in part in Washington and in part in Detroit. So the building I lived in, a you know, member of the Temptations singing group, lived there, some of the Supremes, the chairman and founder of Motown Records, his son and ex-wife lived in the building and his son was my best friend um, down the street from my aunt. Lived Eddie Kendricks, one of the temptations. The writers of many of Motown's songs were down the street, and then doctors and lawyers were there as well. So I got a chance to see something that many kids, especially kids of color, did not get a chance to see, which were very successful African American men in business. And then on Capitol Hill, you know, as the country was changing and we'd gone through the civil rights movement and more in voting rights, so the Congress was becoming more diverse. So I got a chance to meet some very interesting, transformative people for our country. So that opened my eyes up to some great possibilities. You know, my, my high school graduation, for example, started in the morning at the Rose garden of the white house. And so president Carter presented me with a certificate of achievement. And then while Walter Mondale who was vice president at the time was sitting in the audience, along with my grandfather, their hotel doorman and my mom and my aunt and uncle, and then from there we went to a lunch in the Capitol. And then our graduation ceremony was in the uh, Canon caucus room where the Congress elects a speaker of the House of Representatives. And then that evening at, uh, prom was at the National Botanical Garden. So amazing, almost like a presidential inauguration. So it's, you know, it's a very unique experience. Mm-hmm. So that kind of it opened my eyes to, there were you know just great possibilities out there. So I was expecting that I was going to do something interesting, different, and with a purpose. So I grew up. I mean, as much as say, money moves New York, politics and kind of a sense of purpose moves D.C. And so, as driven as people were, say, in New York to do well financially, I was driven to do well, you know, for a purpose and to obviously make a nice living so that I could support myself.
0: Right. Do you think that's the same today? I think people,
1: depending on where you are geographically, I think I think people. You know, and what's valued? Um, I think people, you know, young people adapt to the environment that they're in, and then they go away to college and they kind of evolve and adapt to that environment, and then go out to the working world and make their mark in that area of interest. And so,
0: so then, so then, how did you get from being in the mortgage business? Actually, it's not the mortgage, the appraisal business, into becoming a real estate developer? Well, I worked for
1: my mother, except
0: for about two years.
1: And I love my mother, but she was hard to work for. because so I started <laughs> my own business. And so the federal government through different government agencies promotes home own ownership and has for, you know, for many, many decades, a century, essentially. Fannie Mae was created by the federal government to to create liquidity and a mortgage market and, uh, Freddie Mac, something similar. So they also had Department of Housing and Urban Development. And then also when the baby boomers came back, They all bought homes, which is what stimulated our economy. And the Veterans Administration provided guarantees for mortgages for veterans, and so making it easier for veterans to qualify for mortgages and get lower rates. Mm -hmm. So I um, ended up being approved by the department, by HUD and the Veterans Administration, and my the door opening took place because a friend of mine worked in Congress and had a congressperson write a letter to the Secretary of HUD to get me an interview. So I started an appraisal business with a client, which was the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And then I you know, I, mean, I was competent and qualified, but um, nevertheless I got my opportunity in part for that and uh built that business up and as I was expanding I leased new office space and I leased more space than I needed because I expected to expand. So I sublet some of it. And one of them, two spaces were in the real estate brokers and it turns out that they were both bringing me deals too. So, and this one real estate broker came into my office one afternoon and offered me a deal in an area called Anacostia in Southeast DC, which is the equivalent of the South Bronx probably. Mm-hmm. I said, why in the world would I want to be here? I want to be downtown. And he showed me a letter that was signed by the mayor of Washington addressed to another developer committing to free lease office space in a building to be built on that site. And the broker told me the only problem is he won't pay this developer won't pay my client his asking price. I said, well, how much have you asked me? He said $900,000. So well, what's the offer? He said seven fifty. I said, really? And uh, so I figured if the mayor were willing to lease from them, he'd certainly be willing to lease from me. Mm -hmm. And so I made a deal to pay the guy, the the seller the $900,000 and got the property tied up and met with him and uh, convinced him to give me enough time to get the deal done. And by that time I was chairman of the property tax appeal board for Washington, DC, so I was pretty known in the business real estate community. And so he knew I had access and I would get at least a level playing field from the mayor. Some of them willing to lease from them, willing to lease from me, which turned out to be true. And
0: so that was a little risky.
1: Yes. I went on and found some investors who were local developers, a partnership of three men working together and, uh, they became my development partner. We had pursued another site together and weren't successful, but you know, we kept the relationship going and so we ended up putting up the money. Um, and then we split the deal 50, 50. And so that was my first development deal. I started construction on it. We started in 87 and I delivered in 89 and still own the building today. The city leased for 20 years and another 10 by another mayor, and now another 16. And my son is uh, handling the renovation that I
0: built. Wow, amazing.
1: Yeah, and the neighborhood transformed into a totally different, one of the most dynamic areas in the city. Now.
0: So it seems like it was a kind of a recipe of, that included a lot of luck, some risk, okay. contacts, Knowledge. A whole bunch of things that kind of go into a pot that make a deal.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean look, my definition I learned the definition of, of luck from a, a banker who became you know a friend and mentor of mine. And he told me the definition of, of luck was where opportunity and preparation merge together. So the opportunity is very true, great definition because the opportunity came to my door when the broker brought in the deal for me. And then I was prepared to take advantage of it because I understood the political system that we were in and was able to bring the capital to get the deal done. And then also the most important thing, I think, is to act when the opportunity presents itself. I think most people will get if they're in the mix, they're going to see opportunities. And the ones who end up fulfilling their goals and most often exceeding them are the ones that respond firmly to the opportunities
0: but how do you know a good opportunity from a bad opportunity it's like wh- how do you you know it's easy to say that but then you have to act on i mean how many opportunities <clears throat> do you see a week i'm sure you get deals on your desk every day
1: yeah and so, and, and by the way i try to look yeah. at every single one quickly but so, well, i've vet them very fast and well, I have a, obviously now a team of people that help do that but when i see a deal that comes directly to me mm-hmm. you know i'll filter it Pretty quickly, I filter based on scale, and uh, and then geographic location. Well, you know, do I want to do something in Iowa? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I go filter that, then I look at what what one of the possibilities. And if the possibilities are intriguing, then I'll take a look at.
0: It. And how much of what you do is based on your gut?
1: It's based on an informed instinct. So I think being informed of the market and being a dreamer. I mean, it's a big part of what we do as developers is dream, have these ideas. And so I'm a big dreamer, so I'm a, a big idea person. And so I think having a responsible dream, but and I, I mean, it's, it's that zone in between responsible and recklessness. And if you dream in that space, that's how you get, you know, deals done that other people may not see. And mm-hmm. I think that's where you can be successful. And I mean, it's, there's no secret ingredient to running around paying more money than anybody else. And, than trying to sell it for more money than anybody else. I mean, that requires a great deal of luck Mm -hmm. and great time. Um, but having seeing something that other people don't see, that's something different. I mean, I think look, look at Hudson Yards, not everybody saw Hudson Mm -hmm. Yards. Um, there was a prior developer who had it, gave it back. And so Steve Ross and Jeff Blau saw the possibilities and they knew that the possibilities were going to be challenging, but that. If they produced a great product, they could overcome the area and reestablish the area as something very special. And then they got a great deal of luck. West Chelsea on the south end was moving up towards them and, you know, then, you know, Midtown West working its way down. And so they found themselves in a a very good position, but they didn't dream big and they didn't see the possibilities and they'd never built anything that big before. Mm -hmm. And they didn't see the possibilities wouldn't have gotten done and if they weren't knowledgeable about where things were and had good instincts politically, then there'd be no subway stop there, yeah, so I think that having the vision to see what's possible that's I think what separates you know anybody I think successful people from in any industry is understanding what the future's going to look like
0: yeah I think that's a necessary ingredient for you know to be a successful developer agreed is there a deal that you Kind of missed on that you looked at and you're like, oh, I, you know, I should have. Yeah. I one mean, that got away or one that you kind of misjudged.
1: I mean, look, there's, I could have invested in Starbucks very early mm-hmm. and didn't, and then I um, when I had a new when I had a New York office here for when I was when I, when we were based in Miami in the early two thousands to mid two thousands I think mid two thousands. 2005, 2008. And we were running our financial business because we borrowed more and more money. So we set up an office to help us do that here in New York. And we would share the floor with a private equity fund. They were one of the early investors in Facebook and they were doing a new offering. Mm-hmm. And I could have invested $10 million to that and mm-hmm. I had the money. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't. I could have ended up $10 million, probably worth a you know, close to a billion dollars, certainly a half a billion dollars today. Right. So that's one that got away from me. And it was, I didn't know the business. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of risk averse. And then I let you know, I went when Citigroup, got down to a dollar a share. Um, I called my broker up and said, look, go buy $30 million worth mm-hmm. of Citigroup. But he talked me out of it, I let him talk me out of it. Mm-hmm. And that was a mistake too. So, I mean, the real estate deals, I mean, I missed some of those, but I mean, most often, I think what happens is if I, I I try not to look back. Mm -hmm. So if I miss it, I move on and I'm on to the next one in the journey. When I miss something, it's because I'm paying attention to something else. And hopefully that, you know, so far, most often those things have
0: worked out. So which is the deal you're most proud of real estate deal looking back? If you you had to pick one, I would say the first building I built would be the one I'm most proud of. Um,
1: Mm -hmm. I think they do. I think it's, I, well, I know it is much harder to get your first deal done than any other deal later. And to be able to get my first deal done, having never built a building before I'd never owned real estate. I didn't own my own home. i made a decision that the first real estate I acquired was going to be income generating. And, uh, so being able to do that, have essentially no, not uh, no significant amount of money. And to be able to go and do that with limited resources, I felt proud of it. I did that, you know, I made that deal when I was between 26 and 27. I mean, I, it was a heavy lift and, and in Washington is very political. So right before the deal got done, the developer who lost the deal leaked it to the story, to the Washington post. And I ended up being on the front page of the Washington post and they were trying to spin it as if it was an insider deal between the mayor and me. And uh, so I got a hit politically. I've learned a lot too. I mean, I learned the power of the media and how to make it work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned how to be resourceful. And I also learned um, the important lesson of, I mean, being able to offset my weaknesses. I've never built a building before. I could have done that deal by myself, signed up by myself, but I've never done a building before. And so I needed to get somebody who had.
0: So do you have do you have partners in every deal now, or have you gone away from that model?
1: I've gone away from it most of the time, but on the larger deals when I've gone into new markets, many times we'll have we'll have a partner. Um, the Partners on the first deal, we're still partners today. The three of them are a bit older than me, but I mean they're in their eight, a couple of them are in their eighties, mm-hmm. but we're still good friends. They are working with my son Donahue. I talk to them from time to time, and so it's been a wonderful ride. And and you know, a good deal for all of us and, and a good example of what a good partnership
0: can be. So how, what advice do you give to someone on how to pick the perfect partner?
1: I think if we wait to find the perfect solution, then we'll never do anything. But the one, that's, the one that fits the best for you, I mean, and that's not just the economics. I think while we're doing a bottom line activity of business, the best financial decision is not always the best decision. If you think about our industry, there is a lot of litigation. And normally a lot of times that litigation starts because somebody out negotiated the other person and the other person's trying to get it back. Or there's all kinds of things where the deal wasn't as good as it worked out, looked at, looked before, or, you know, there's not a lot of compatibility. So the key that I've learned over the years is that the best deals are where there's compatibility. Everybody's kind of right-sized about what their role is and everyone's comfortable letting, the partner who's best suited for certain roles do them. Mm-hmm. And the worst partnerships are when their ego's involved or where somebody thinks that they're better at everything than everybody else and then there's two alphas in the mix and there's you know, ultimately conflict.
0: Right. So if you had to look at your 30-year-old self now, knowing what you know and what you've learned, what what is the one piece of advice you would give to 30-year-old Don Peebles looking forward to develop grow partnerships, grow your business, your brand
1: one I would not have sold anything I mean I was I would have reminded myself to buy and hold and to have you know grown by expansion as opposed to grow by selling. So I grew my company by and large by pretty much buying and selling buying and selling buying and selling. And so, you know, it took me to see that the impact of that would have been the Royal Palm hotel. I sold that, won the rights to develop that in 1996, which is what brought me to Miami. So building this great hotel on South Beach, it was a pain in the butt to build. Got it built, got it open, stabilized. I delivered it, I think in 2002, we sold it in 2005 for a big price all in $130 million and it cost $80 million to build. So I was really happy. I tried to buy back in 2015 for $230 million <laughs> and it sold for $280 million. So I tell myself by selling early, I left $150 million on the table.
0: Yeah, but didn't that profit go into other deals to make you more it money? Did. On, you know. It did, but that was, so what I would
1: have figured out earlier is how to find more money. Mm-hmm. and keep the deals right and so and i think that's what new york teaches you what what new york one of the greatest things going is that it's you know it's number one product is money mm-hmm. and so it's not the money that's the unique ingredient normally it's the deal and the ability to execute on the deal those are the unique qualities and if you have those two things then you can attract money
0: so what's going on in new york now why why is the market so bad why Are we in the situation we're in? What's going on?
1: Unfortunately, kind of like the perfect storm. So you have a, the city is experiencing a diminishing quality of life. And I think ultimately human beings are looking to have a nice quality of life and be happy. And so quality of life is top on the list. And I mean, just the overall experience of walking around the city or Mm -hmm. driving around the city. Got scaffolding everywhere, trash, homelessness, You know, many things that just disrupt, you know, the transportation system is run down. So all the things that are just a basic experience are are not, you know, doing well. They're not giving the residents a good experience. Then you have this growing divide economically. You have wealth concentrated in the top 1%. And in terms of people, how they live, the top 10% live one way. And then everybody else is kind of diminishing down another way. So you have this income and wealth disparity that's creating more conflict and that's percolating in the political world. And then, of course, the developers and the capital markets misread demand. I mean, we had 9-11 um, happen to the city. Mike Bloomberg essentially came in and with his leadership in the business community, they saved New York City and brought it back and New York became a wonderful place to be, to live and to do business. And then, as that was happening, then we hit the you know recession after New York got its stride. We hit the you know the financial crisis in 08. and so that turned off the faucet, and it turned off the faucet until really 2012. Mm-hmm. So there was pent up demand. So Gary Barnett does a building, you know, Doris do a building, and they do very well, and they're at the high high end. And so other developers look at that and they look at the volume Walker tower, your project that you did, mm-hmm. they look at those success stories and they think they can be replicated consistently. But what was happening is that you there were great products being built in outstanding locations and they were filling, you know, a pent up demand. And now that pent up demand got fully satisfied. And now you look at that demand is, you know, becoming more and more balanced. And then state and local income tax um, deduction taken away, more taxes being levied in the real estate industry, the political environment changing and continued talks of further taxes. Foreign um, investments in residential condos are being discouraged by New York and the country. And you know both the New York City government and the national government are discouraging foreign investment in as much here. And other countries like China putting restrictions on taking money out. So all that comes together all at once. Mm-hmm. And now it's created, you know, an excess inventory. I think this some stats are saying that we have almost a 10-year
0: inventory mm-hmm.
1: of you know, Congress.
0: Yeah. So I mean, you're a registered Democrat, yes. correct? Yes. <clears throat> but it sounds to me you're talking more like a Republican, not to get political. And I happen to agree with everything you just said, by the way, Um, although I'm not a registered, I mean, I'm really an independent, I think. I think Mike Bloomberg was the best thing that ever happened to New York City. And I think what our current mayor has done is atrocious, you know, along with the fact that retail is dead. You know, one third of all retail stores in New York City are vacant. And that has an adverse effect on just the curb appeal of our city. You know, it's not great walking down a street where you see you're under a scaffold, there's a homeless guy on, under the scaffold, and it's a vacant storefront. So that doesn't help things. What do you say to that? Like, what, what is your political position and what do we do about it? Um, what, what do you think the solution is? Because this is a problem.
1: Well, I think, look, I'm I'm a Democrat, <coughs> but I'm a fiscally conservative, pro-business Democrat. So I think people who are the far left <coughs> by terms of, economic and business policies are more socialist than a Democrat. But where I am is I think that we need to have an environment that provides equal access to opportunity for everybody. And that's been the challenge. And that's why we have this growing wealth divide. I've always believed, for example, on affordable housing. I think our industry dropped the ball on that. I think that our industry and our organizations like Repney should have taken the lead on coming up with plans that could actually work for affordable housing. Who better to address affordable housing than the real estate industry? Mm -hmm. Who best to deal with economic inclusions for minorities and women in the real estate industry than the industry itself? And, you know, I have been a proponent of this, you know, for a very long time and have told people in our industry here in New York, that if we don't take the leadership in these two areas, it's gonna be imposed on us. And now we're seeing it. It's imposed on the industry and it's in a way that we're not gonna like it. So you can see the rent control laws have changed, having a devastating impact on values for rental housing and will affect the supply for quite some time. More discussions on other types of restrictions, more taxes on the industry, and so I think that that's going to have a chilling effect on the economy. You're right about the retail space. I mean, that's another thing that technology has decimated the real estate industry nationally, mm-hmm. New York for an experience relies very heavily on it. And by the way, technology is disrupting the restaurant space too, which is another big consumer of retail space. And now that's on its way to changing too, because restaurants Are doing more of their servings in terms of number of meals. Many of them are are getting at a point where more more of the business is being, you know, through Grubhub and Seamless and others, Mm -hmm. other apps. So I think that structurally the city's got to recognize that it is competing for business and it's competing for consumers to stay here. So that means a better quality of life experience, a business environment that promotes business opportunities and an acknowledgement that there needs to be dramatic steps taken on our public education system and on, you know, affordable housing. And that the government is going to need to prioritize how it spends its money. It's not an endless supply of money. The other thing is that unlike what Trump's trying to do about building walls, Manhattan cannot, can't build a wall around around Manhattan. So rich people are very mobile and they will leave and that they will take with them their tax base. Businesses can be very mobile. They will leave and take their tax base with.
0: Well, we're seeing that happen. Yes, I mean, I think nearly 300 people are leaving New York a, a day Yes, and they're going to Florida and, and other parts where the tax structure is very different. Uh, so I take it you're you know, opposed to what happened in Long Island City with Amazon being chased out of town.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, look, I think New York should have, the politicians should have seen this coming and probably have, and they don't care. I mean, if you look, New York was the third largest State in America, it's now the fourth largest state. Florida has usurped New York as the third largest state in America. It gets more representation now in Congress as a result of that, and Florida is growing as a state more than nine hundred people a day, and there's a reason for that: quality of life, taxes, and business opportunities.
0: But why is the Miami market doing so poorly then?
1: Because it's—I mean—it's just an oversupply of condos. Not mm-hmm. everybody wants to live in condos. There is no restriction on inventory. I mean, New York has both structural and artificial restrictions on supply. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, there's not much available development land in Manhattan. That's why the outer boroughs have grown significantly. And their land use restrictions that restrict supply. Florida has, it's a total, a new frontier. So limited restrictions on development. And there's lots and lots of land available. So you see more development there, but If you look at the areas that are supply constrained, like Miami beach, those kinds of markets are doing well. But I mean, Florida is a growing city. And so it's gonna grow and in order for it to grow, it has to have, any city that grows, it has to have ample housing. So this is good for Florida to be oversupplied because there's ample housing for people to move and absorb it. And at 900 people a day, um, that gets absorbed pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And so what'll happen is Florida will boom and bust And then the the Miami's will boom and bust and the bust time will be less deep and shorter and it'll continue to expand. And I think that's what you're going to keep seeing happen. So where do you see the opportunity? I mean, in New York, the opportunity is to kind of wait and see and to look to buy strategically. I think the office market, Hudson Yards, has proven that there is a
0: strong demand
1: for new advanced technology environmentally sensitive
0: office space well we're seeing a lot of that being built right now yes exactly so there might be a glut. it could be but that'll again then
1: it'll be a tool that new york can use with the proper leadership to attract more businesses to come back here or to come here because right now we're growing in the tech sector but i think that new york's a wait and see i think it's there's opportunities mm-hmm. to buy now. I think condo prices are, are dropping significantly. They'll drop more. I think in terms mm-hmm. of in the growth, it's going to be the sunbelt where it's business friendly, good quality of life, which I haven't mentioned the climate. I mean, New York, New York climate, I mean, overall is a, a you know, not repressive. You get a couple months of very cold weather, but overall it's not very bad. I mm-hmm. mean, overall it's, it's got more. I think New York City has more sunshine days than Miami. Um, I didn't know that. yeah, I mean, it's interesting because of the cloud coverage and so forth. So New York in terms of sunny days had more, I think, than Miami, well, but I think people are going to go for what they perceive as quality of life, cost of living. And I think that's another thing that New York is extremely expensive for almost everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone who's making six figures and living anywhere else other than New York say in San Francisco would be living very well is struggling here Mm -hmm. and I think people are going to get more and more frustrated with that. And so the places like South Florida and I think Palm Beach County, Broward County, I think Jacksonville and Tampa and Orlando will continue to do well and present good opportunities in all sectors of the real estate space other than retail. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the other Sunbelt state, I think Tennessee, I think parts of Texas, I mean, Austin, especially grow Arizona's doing very well attracting Californians because the state of California is in a similar place, especially Southern California, as New York is. It just has better weather, Um, but people are leaving there and they're going to Arizona, Texas, Nevada.
0: So are you developing in any of these other states? um,
1: We're looking again at Florida, Mm -hmm. um, where we've had uh, an active president for quite some time. We're beginning to look at acquisitions in Tennessee Um, because they're underserved on hotels and on on condos. And we're taking another look at Nevada. We used to have an office in Nevada in the last market cycle. We had a Las Vegas office. So we're now beginning
0: to take another look there. So where do you live? Where is your your home state?
1: My home state is Florida, but uh, I I have an apartment in in New York City. It's been a a bit of time here. And we have projects in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, DC, Charlotte, North Carolina, and Los Angeles. So I'm traveling and my daughter's a a junior in high school. So she has one more year and then she's off to college. And then, you know, and my time in about four different, my wife and I'll spend our time in about four different cities.
0: So how, how do you manage that? Like that sounds insane.
1: Fortunately, my daughter's sport is, um, she's a a top equestrian competitor. And so she competes in the uh, Palm Beach uh, Winter Equestrian Festival each year. And that runs from January through the end of March. So she's in Florida every week, just about, mm-hmm. and her school gives her a lot of flexibility to be down there. So we spend that those three to four months in Florida, regardless, and then it's been the holidays down there. So I just operate, you know, from you know home base of Miami sometimes of the year, and then sometimes of the year home base in you know uh, in New York.
0: So I mean, with with travel, I mean, you look very healthy. You seem to eat well exercise, I'm assuming. There's got to be some structure in your life, especially with all the travel meetings. I'm sure you work long hours. How do you manage your life in a way that it's conducive to a healthy lifestyle and a happy lifestyle with a good balance with your wife, your children, your business? What advice do you have and how do you live your life where it's balanced?
1: I mean, I've, I've always started to prioritize I, my son I, and I've, I've learned to do it uh, you know, early. Um, so my son uh, is now 25. I coached him in basketball from the time I think he was seven until 14 or 15. So I moved my offices from downtown Miami to Coral Gables to be closer to my house. So I could get home and conduct basketball practices. Mm-hmm. I built a basketball court at, at my house. So I was able to engage in being a parent, and so I balanced it. And so I did things like I coach basketball with his team from five till seven, have dinner, and then go into my home office and work, and pick up you know the two to three hours I lost, you know, coaching basketball.
0: How many hours of night sleep do you get? I get about five, and Mm -hmm. I'm trying to
1: figure out a way to get eight. I mean, I try to balance. My wife travels with me a bit on business when I go on business. She'll travel maybe a third to half the time, and I work. My our, my son works in our company, so I get to see him a lot. And I try not to work on weekends, so I make it a point not to work on weekends. I try to do things that are interesting. Like this is interesting to me, so I, I do the. I make time for things that are more interesting.
0: To so, me. what do you do on the weekend? Like, what do you enjoy? What don't we know about you? Like, where do you enjoy yourself beyond? interesting things and business related things do you have a hobby
1: well yeah well i i i used to ski quite a bit and play tennis we have a tennis court at our home in in miami and so i used to do both of those things due to injuries over the last five years i haven't been able to do either one of those so i exercise but you know i like movies we socialize a bit you know we were with friends i go to Coe's horse shows, trying to watch her. We, you know, we have a boat, so we go out on the water. Most of my time I spend with family and friends. You know, I kind of got over doing the big gala things and so forth. But I've done it for so many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my wife and I travel, we'll take a couple of weeks, you know, in September, which is her birthday and our wedding anniversary time and we'll travel to something interesting there. And I, I try to find what I do is I try to, when I travel for business and especially If my wife or if our daughter goes with us as well, so Katrina and Chloe go with me, then, you know, we'll mix it up and I'll make work and some pleasure. But I just try to kind of fit in other things of my life as opposed to looking for the perfect time where I could get away for a week or I could get away for two weeks. Mm -hmm. I just try to mix it in. And I am in the process now of moving our office. A big core of our business now has been. Consolidated in uh, in Washington, DC for a number of different reasons. One, good quality of life for the people who work for us, cost of doing business, far less. Mm -hmm. Um, Cost of of talent, far less in New York. But one of the things I'm doing with our New York office is I am moving it into the building I live in. And so I'll take an elevator ride down to work. Great. And uh, to make it a bit more convenient. But I just Mm -hmm. try to mix up, you know. Business and pleasure to the degree I can.
0: Right. So, about six weeks ago, I did a TEDx talk. I don't know if you managed to see it, but the premise was that, you know, it's, it, I called it The Art of Learning How to Improvise. And the premise behind the talk was that I believe that very much like artists and creative people have a set up time for creative thinking, you know, they go into a practice room, they'll spend eight hours a day just thinking and coming up with new ideas. I believe that to be a successful businessman, you have to do the same thing. You have to set up structured time for unstructured thinking. And I was actually just watching this biography, actually this documentary on Bill Gates. I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix. Fascinating. It's called Inside Bill's Brain. And I'm finding out that more and more successful people do this. You know, he goes away one week of the month where he goes into a cabin He reads, he just thinks he's got no cell phone, uninterrupted, you know, and and I don't know if it happens to you, but most of my best ideas come to me in the shower. You know, when I have no outside influence, where I'm not being reactive to things, but I have the freedom to allow my mind to think. And I call it the freedom to jam. Do you have that in your life? Do you set up time to do that where you allow that creativity to come in? Because you strike me as a very left, equally weighted left and right brain person. You mentioned you play chess, but you're also, knowing you and having worked with you, you're also very creative and you see things in a very balanced way. So do you have that in your life?
1: I do. I try to take certain times. So one of the things I do is I get up in, in, in the morning early and then I'm all by myself. I sit and have a cup of coffee and I'm, I relax. I don't grab my cell phone immediately. Mm-hmm. I don't grab my iPad to read the paper. I spend about 10 to 15 minutes just relaxing kind of thinking, and then I'll read some newspapers and so forth, but I get and then you know when I shower, of course, you know I don't play music you know, I used to when I was younger play a lot of music when I shower, but I just I just use it as quiet time, but also what I like is when I'm in, say in Florida or the Hamptons, I drive, and sometimes uh, like my daughter shows in Palm Beach, which is about ninety minutes from Miami so she'll go early in the mornings or she'll stay there on the weekends. Sometimes I'll go by myself and I'll just drive and I'll take the hour and a half drive mm-hmm. and then I'll just relax. Sometimes, you know, going out to the Hamptons in the summer, weather's bad. I don't fly. So, um, I can't, I can't fly cause of bad weather. So I'll drive and I use the time. So I try to use the time to do certain things or when I travel on business by myself and I do that, And I said, two thirds of my business travel is by myself. So I'm flying six or seven hours to California. Mm -hmm. Some of that time, I will just spend quiet. Mm -hmm. When I'm there, I always make it a point to, at the end of the day, to sit out. I always go uh, a suite with a terrace. Sit out, enjoy the California climate and weather have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and relax. So I take, it, take those kinds of times. Or if I don't have an early morning meeting, I'll have breakfast on the terrace by myself, not in front of the TV, and just sit and have breakfast and kind of mentally collect myself.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I think you probably some of your best ideas come in those moments.
1: Yes, they do. They give you a bit more clarity because there's no sound coming at you, no, no distractions.
0: Right couple of quick questions answer like the sure. first thing that comes in <laughs> what's your favorite book you've ever read if you had to recommend one book art of war okay sun tzu yes what is your favorite building in in the world architecturally
1: architecturally my favorite building in the world is the u.s Capitol.
0: okay who designed the u.s Capitol? do you know I don't I should, I, know. I should know the answer I to that. Too. But um, I been the
1: architect of the Capitol for a long time, but but and the Capitol has actually an architect. an architect of the Capitol is such a position,
0: but I don't know. I think DC has some of the most beautiful architecture of any city I've visited in the United States. Yeah. I think it's some it's I don't know if it's not known. It seems to be like one of the best kept secrets. I guess if you don't go there you don't know about it. No, and
1: I mean in the Capitol, I like the exterior architecture because it's extremely <laughs> unique, but also you would expect it to be this giant cold building inside, and it mm-hmm. it's actually an intimate building.
0: Interesting. Yeah. And um, what's your opinion of some of these Star tech buildings we see going up—glass, weird shapes, super tall skyscrapers? Is your preference for a, an old, you know, pre-war building, or do you have an aesthetic that resonates a, more with you? No,
1: I think a mixture. I mean, look, I like. Um, cause of, you know, I grew up in Washington DC in part. So I like, you know, historic buildings, but I also like great contemporary architecture. And I think great cities have a mixture of architecture. So I think that there should be a mixture and what makes a city unique. I think architecturally, New York is becoming more unique architecturally. Um, Chicago is a very unique city architecturally. I think mixtures of buildings. So I've, you know, so I don't really have a favorite style as much as I like to see a mixture. I like it just be done well.
0: Right, which is your favorite home that you own?
1: You know, my wife and I are thinking about that now because we have these large houses and we'll have no kids in the house soon, and so we're thinking of what we're selling first. And so well, we're talking about that now. Um, and uh, I'd say the best, my favorite home is our home in Coral Gables in Florida, mainly because it's got yeah, 90 plus mature oak trees in our front yard, and it's mm-hmm. spectacular. It's just like this beautiful forest, and the trees have been trimmed and over the years and trained to grow. And so they've got all this light coming through. You can see the sunlight coming through, and very unique, and very unique for Florida because Florida is a kind of palm tree, you know, type of tropical um, experience, and, and our house is very different. Right. And then it's a Mediterranean home, large. About eighteen thousand square feet, but intimate. So I, uh, I like to have rooms that have purposes, mm-hmm. but that are intimate.
0: So it's interesting, you know, when you talk about the home. It's I think it resonates mostly about a feeling. Yes. you know that evokes inside of you. It's not really the size or, you know, the finishes. It's you know, it's really about the way you. It makes you feel, and I think that's the way I look at real estate and, you know, when we work with developers like yourself to design and deliver to market homes, it's how these people are gonna feel living in them. And I feel that, you know, we've kind of seen the same apartment for the last 30 years and we've changed, you know, we're very different than our kids yeah. and and our kids want different things. They want experiences. They, they don't need an 18,000 square foot home. They'd be fine with, you know, 1,500 square feet and they make decisions a little bit differently. So, you know, it seems to me like we've been a little bit stagnant with the way residential living has evolved. And, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Where do you see it going? Do you see it staying the same? I think you make a
1: very good point, John. I think that the fact that we've been building the same product for so long, which is why there's a glut in the inventory, because there are buyers out there. There's a demand, I think... You mentioned before we came on that there's a shortage nationally of housing, mm-hmm. there's a shortage of 4 million, carve California out because California has about a 3 million uh, unit shortage of housing at a minimum, mm-hmm. um, driven heavily by LA and San Francisco. So you, there's a demand for the housing. It's just that the product that's out here, it's not attracting buyers in many regards. So that's because the millennials, the generation Xs, they want to live differently, no more is the definition or the example of success a, you know, excessive, you know, amount of square footage in a home. No more. I mean, the, the symbols of success are very different now. And it's more experiential, as you pointed out, than for other people. And so what's happening if you look even, you know, in places like Palm Beach, look who's buying there. They're people, our generation or older. So I think that the market in New York needs to a change and, and we need to adapt to what the customer wants, smaller, more efficient space with the building, providing an exceptional level of amenities. that gives an experience, um, it reaches there, the customer base there. And that also will affect affordability, mm-hmm. um, because I think that even now in the market we're in today, I think anything $3 million or less is selling pretty robustly. And so we can control the cost of housing by reducing the square footage significantly.
0: Yeah, I agree a thousand percent. You know, the project we're doing with Rockefeller, Rose Hill, is exactly what you described. It's efficient, small, below $3 million luxury housing with an amenity suite that includes a squash court, basketball court, swimming pool, gym, you know, library, event space, And we're about to file our third pricing amendment to raise prices in a market where, you know, everyone is taking 20 to 30% discounts and offering 6% brokerage commissions.
1: Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, I think even my demographic, where many people my age or kids are already out of the house or, you know, gone to college and and so on. So my wife and I will be empty nesters. Our apartment here in Manhattan is almost 8,000 square feet. 8,000? Yes. There is no need for that. Right. Okay. So we are now evaluating: where do we want to live? Do we want to live in the building that we developed, um, or do we want to, in, in in terms of New York, what's the mm-hmm. apartment look like that we want to be in? And one thing we are certain on: it's not going to be eight thousand square feet. So is a you know we're you know more along the lines of something half that or less. Mm-hmm. And when you start cutting it down, there's not a lot of options.
0: Right, agreed. And I think people will pay a premium if you're giving them what they want. Yes. The problem in our market now is that there's a lot of inferior product that's overpriced for what's being offered. Yes. And I think that's a fundamental flaw. And you know, we still see the successes and there are still buildings that break record prices and sell well. I think the buyer is just getting a little bit more discerning. They're more sophisticated. They're not going to part with their money so quickly and it's not this irrational exuberance that we've seen in past cycles that have gone up.
1: Yeah, I toured a building. I went to lunch with a very good friend of mine from California who's in the entertainment business and he just bought an apartment in Manhattan and we were going to meet for lunch and I suggested a restaurant in Midtown. I suggested Cipriani and he said, we have a restaurant here. So I went to the building there It's 220 Central Park Mm -hmm. South, and it's an amazing building, an opulent building. It's exceptional quality, and it's just a spectacular building, and it's immensely successful financially from all I've read. It'll be the last one like that for a long time that does well. Hmm. That's my prediction. There are not that many people buying apartments or willing to buy apartments for 30 to $250 million. Right. And as I... If we understand right now there are a couple of other buildings that are being built to attract that same buyer or similar buyers. And I think that the next, this generation, generation is now going to create wealth, greater wealth than our generation, by the way, um, is going to want to live differently.
0: So how do you gauge success? Part one of the question. Number two, I was thinking while you were talking about how people spend their money and what they find, you know, they want to do with their money and what they look at as successful. You know, you said buying the big house was like a gauge of success. Or I remember when I was a broker, you know, 25 years ago, my client, the Wall Street broker would get his bonus and he'd go out the next week and he'd buy a Ferrari and a penthouse. And that was his gauge of success. It seems to be very different now. How has your perception of success personally changed over your career? Because I'm sure it has becoming a father, a husband, a father, developer, and then how do you now today, 2020 gauge success for yourself?
1: I mean, it's very interesting. So I um, I read a lot as a teenager and young adult, and my mother encouraged me to read a lot. So I read books, something like Off the Wall, like Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, but also um, some philosophy. And Abraham Maslow had the theory of self-actualization. And you want to have, you know, the necessities. And so I think I kind of look at my life as kind of similar to that. You want to have the necessities. So I obviously wanted to make money so I could support myself and be able to afford to live, eat, and, you know, have the necessities. And then, um, once you have the necessities, then you want to achieve more along the lines of, you know, wealth and then love. And then power. So I kind of look at the wealth. Early, I got. I was fortunate. You know, I was a multi-millionaire in my twenties, self-made. And there's nothing like that, by the way. I mm-hmm. mean, it is very different than having someone either give it to you or do it for you. Um, but doing it on your own, I mean, it gives you a very different sense of purpose and more, and kind of almost a sense of in, in invincibility to mm-hmm. a degree. So. And what was successful for me economically happened so long ago. I don't have an economic goal. None. Mm -hmm. I have zero economic goal. I do not want to be the richest person in New York. I don't want to be the richest person in Florida. I don't don't want to be the richest African-American. I don't want to be the richest real estate developer. I have no economic goals. I mean, other than I want the company to survive and do well. And I stopped having those economic goals a very long time ago. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to be the husband that I had wanted for my mother. I wanted to be the father that I wanted for myself when I was a little boy. And I believe I have accomplished those things and continue to do that each day. Um, not perfect, but you know, um, and that those accomplishments are much more meaningful to me and are, are indicative of who I am and part of what makes me, I believe a successful person having a successful life. And then I've also tried to look at not necessarily political power or power, but the ability to use business and financial success as a tool of transformation to give back, to be free to speak my mind so I can say things and do things that I wouldn't be able to do if I worked for someone else, if I was in a different position and if I hadn't accomplished much business and no one would be listening. So, I am at the phase of, you know, where I want to continue to have the experiences of being with my family and knocking down barriers that really essentially women and minorities confront every day. Mm -hmm. And I've chosen to try to do that in my business. And so being able to do that and have a part of that, that would be what would be successful for me as a business person and for me to be my success in terms of being happy and being accomplished. It's you know spending time with my family, being a good father, and mentor to my son and to my daughter, being you know a good friend to my wife, though so and being a good friend to my friends. I am fortunate to have some very good friends and some very close friends, and to be good friends to them. And that's that would be you know kind of what my version of success is.
0: Yeah, I think that resonates with me personally in a in a very big way. And hats off to you. I mean, I think you've been, you know, I I don't know your relationship with your wife and son and daughter, but, you know, from what I see and what I hear and, you know, the little bit that I've seen, very successful. And I think you've been a great mentor. I know that I've learned a lot from you in our one project we kind of did together. And it's always, you know, a, a real pleasure speaking to you and the fact that you took the time out of your day and i'm sure you had a million other things you could have done but you chose to be here with me and share some of your um wealth of knowledge and experience i'm really you know grateful for that and congratulations you know and and here's to the next 50 years of growing and learning and being more, you know, successful in the way that you define success. And, you know, it's always like whether we go out for lunch or chat and it's uh, I always come away from a conversation with you having learned something and you always seem to plant a seed in my head to think about something that will germinate into an idea. So I'm very appreciative for that.
1: Well, thank you. I always enjoy <laughs> spending time with you and learning. I learn a lot from you all the time. You helped me design a successful building. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, when, whatever I yeah, can do to help, occasion. thank Thanks you wonderful. and uh, looking forward to some more potentially down the road and um, yeah, it should be exciting times ahead and I hope everyone enjoys listening to this and get something out of it and uh, you know, you may get approached by some people asking you some questions, but you're always very generous with your time and, and knowledge and um, I'm going to let everyone know a little bit about some books Don wrote. And uh, a little bit more information about you. So, Don, thank you so much for for coming in. Thank really you. Really appreciate man. it. All right, thank that you. was fun. Thank you. Thank you.